There are books for sale in the lobby after the session, which Kevin will uh, heartily and lovingly autograph for no extra fee. And um, the microphone is there. Uh, so we entertain questions now. And uh, please welcome back Kevin Van Tegel. Fortunately, everybody's full, so it means they're happy, but hopefully they've had a lot of chance to brood and ask me some really hard, angry questions. <laughs> Hi. Hmm. Leona Jacobs. Um, so in your talk, you talked about <coughs> the idea that we're being told our story as opposed to creating it ourselves. And that sort of made me think... Um, is it really that we're being told that or that we're, we actually do have a story we're being told that's incompatible with the idea of nature? Such as we're resource extraction, we're, you know, um, we need to do all this. We need, the, idea that, the idea that it's dominion over the earth and so we need to take what we, what we have and capitalize on it, literally capitalize on it. Well, yeah, I think it's 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 a it's a it's a deep, multi-fanged creature. There, um, um, we certainly have a collective worldview that's based on how some people have taught us the story of Genesis, for instance. Um, there are other people that read the same story of Genesis and 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 interpret it differently, but they don't get as much airtime as maybe the ones that like the domination piece. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, it's not easy. I mean, the ways in which we think are, 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 are products of what culture has put into us from the time we were born and what they put into our parents before they were born, and, and these things are hard, hard to tilt. But I, I, I'm simply saying that if you're conscious, then that's your job is to be conscious. And, and, and if you're intelligent, then your job is to use your intelligence and that we should be constantly questioning and challenging where assumptions and where facts and where stories come from. You know, we're told, we're told that Alberta's oil. The Alberta I was born in was not about oil. It was a very minor piece of our economy. The Alberta I was born in was rural, largely. It was a, it was a, it was a society that, that had values like family and community and communal effort and, you know, co-ops and, and, and uh, uh, leaving things better than we found them. You hear that still in rural Alberta. But for some reason, we've allowed somebody else, to, uh, we've allowed others to tell us a different story about ourselves that really, if, you know, all we're about is oil. Well, geez, that's a heck of a story to have because we're not going to be doing much with oil in 20 years' time. And so we won't have a, uh, uh, you know, th that would uh, say that we cease to exist as a recognizable people, but we <laughs> won't. It's just that we've allowed that one big story to drown out the real stories about, of who we are. And I go into that again in a couple of those essays, you know, like, um, you could say that um, you know uh, some loud politician represents Alberta, but I would say that Grant McEwen represents Alberta. I would say that uh, um, Carrie Wood and, uh, and and some of these little known people that that, that that are our neighbors represent Alberta. Everybody as well as the noisy one that, that gets all the all the airtime, you know. So it is tricky. Um, in many ways, we need to actually challenge our ways of thinking. But, I, I, but at, at least at the surface, I think we need to at least challenge the stories and try and have different conversations because that will actually help us to change the way we think. Don't know if that 
had any answer to you or not, Mayor. Thank you, Kevin, for your presentation. My name is Klaus Jericho. I have been very interested in ecosystems for quite a few years, actually starting in 1990, and I've been reading about it from all sorts of angles, and I do not understand ecosystems. And I suspect, and I, I'm brave here now, that you too don't understand ecosystems, and I don't think anybody knows how ecosystems really work. So that is the baseline from where I come from, and then to ask the general public to be ecologically sensitive and understanding and to comprehend ecosystems is an impossible task. It cannot be done. And now we have a situation <coughs> where with the uh, government, they have decided for the castle uh, watershed will be protected. And right now, uh, the management plan is at the desk of the bureaucrats in Edmonton, and I'm really curious as to what they will actually write down on a piece of paper before we actually function and follow their rules because I'm sure their decisions, what they write on the piece of paper will be people dictated, the public will dictate what they will write down and the public doesn't understand ecosystems. I think I, I think I'm going to tease a question out of that, which is: Is it even possible to do that? And, and and if it isn't, then why would we bother trying? And I would say that when you're in school, you can get a grade of 100 percent, you can get a grade of 80 percent, 60 percent, 40 percent, 20 percent, or zero percent. Uh, I think our grade on eco ecological literacy is well down in the D's, but I think if we can get into the C's, we're going in the right direction. We may never achieve an A. Um, it, it, it isn't that difficult to understand ecological concepts, and it isn't that difficult to take those understandings into nature and look with new eyes at things that we thought we knew and see them differently. And, and that in itself takes us to a different point of consciousness and gives us a different set of stories than if we don't make the effort. Um, you know, the, the idea that nature is run by disturbance that's a pretty cool idea that allows us to see fires and beetles and predators and all sorts of things differently. And it's the same landscape, but we're now seeing it through different eyes because we've, 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 we've turned on a switch that allows us to process what we're seeing differently. I think that's all we've got to ask for ourselves to do. And, and in terms of the, uh, the Castle Park management plan having a large focus on people, well, yeah, I think it should. Because in this, la in this earth, we are the keystone species. We control everything. There is nothing that is not a product of, of our decisions. Sad to say, it's not the way that probably it, it, it was designed or intended to be, but with whatever it is now, 9 billion of us on the planet, nothing gets unscathed. So we better make sure that we're focused on people, but it's got to be a focus on helping people to be better citizens of their place, not to allow us to continue to flood it and destroy it. So, so, so um, I, I, I'm not averse to the idea of parks being fo focused on people. It's just the question of that. How, what is the focus? Is it simply a place to play, or is it a place to experience, learn, and, and, be, and, and be changed by? And that's a much deeper challenge than simply building a couple of uh, campground stalls and showing people where they can get some good selfies, you know? My name's Cheryl Bradley. I'm really enjoyed your presentation, Kevin. Uh, speaking of stories, uh, there's an oral culture here in southern Alberta that has been here for thousands of years, and I'm talking about the indigenous 
peoples who functioned for thousands of years on stories and connected to this place in a way that's probably quite different than our stories have us connecting to the place. So I'm wondering if you can reflect on the role of those stories as we kind of reinvent ours. Uh, that's a really good question, and uh, and one I'm not ready for. That, that we'll, we'll all find out where I'm going to end up with answering that one. Um, I, th I think that, you know, I touched briefly on Genesis, which is part of sort of the, um, the, the um, I guess, the literary tradition of the Judeo-Christian cu cultures that spread into this landscape. And so uh, that Bible and most holy books are based not on, you know, detailed expositions of ideas. They're based on parables and stories, and, and, uh, and those are teaching things. And very much Aboriginal cultures are based on an oral tradition which is based on parable and teaching stories. And, uh, and, and those stories are rooted in this place, but they're not rooted in this place as it is today. They're rooted in this place as it was before in industrial man swept across the landscape and changed it all. So um, they, they have limited, I would say, teaching ability to help us understand where we are today, but they certainly help us to anchor, and w anchor our thoughts more into how we could relate to the landscape the way it could be. Um, I, it's interesting, I interviewed um, uh, one of the guys that's going to be speaking here soon, Leroy Littleblood, for a talk I did. And, and um, I, was, uh, I was interviewing him about bison, but one of the things he said, you know, in our culture, in his case he was talking about Blackfeet uh, cultures, he said, you know, we have the songs, we have the ceremonies, we have the stories, but we don't have the bison. And when you look out, the bison is not there. And if the bison's not there, then the ceremonies and the stories and the songs really don't have the thing that makes them what they are. And, and, it's, and, and you can never, and, they, and so I think one of the values of actually having nature is it gives us a place where these stories actually have legs, where they actually are still relevant. Um, yeah, I, I, think that, uh, I, I think that those stories should be added into our dialogue. I mean, uh, you know, why should it only be about, um, you know, somebody's latest great canoe trip or something like that? Uh, there, there are stories about this place that go far deeper than that. Uh, thank you, Kevin, for being here this afternoon. Um, my name is Rena Wass, and um, just in listening to what you've been saying, it, it, I, I worry that, um, you know, who's making decisions for our parks? Like, I would like to think that it's a collective force that has awareness about what makes for a healthy environment or not. And everything is a learned skill. So most of our population now is gravitating towards an urban setting. And when they leave that urban setting and go into nature, it is such a contrast that they need to learn about the sacredness of nature and not bring their electronics and their... It's another form of entertainment for them that an aspect of it is so destructive. So that part worries me is... Uh, people that run the parks are often city dwellers and have lived there most of their lives. They haven't lived in nature. So that part worries me. Then I've got another um, area that I really am concerned about, and that is light pollution, um, which, you know, this electric light bulb was only invented a few, well, about 140 years ago, and how intrusive that is. So could you comment, like, how much work is being done say, on light pollution, and maybe a comment on um, my other uh, area of concern. Thank you. 
That's tricky. <laughs> I'll do my best. Um, in terms of who's making decisions on parks, you know, we, we, we task public servants to do that on our behalf, and then uh, one of their expectations is usually reflected in park legislation is that they don't make those, co those decisions in isolation, that they have scientific advice and that they consult the public. So I would say certainly in terms of the newest kid in town here, the castle parks, um, the current government we've got has done an excellent job of, of, of setting us up to have the right conversations around those parks. They did consult experts, they did consult uh, a, a wide cross-section sec of people, and they did, did consult the question of what is the purpose of a park. And as a result, I, I, I haven't seen the management plan, I was involved in the discussions on the management planning, but uh, I did see that during those discussions they actually changed their approach on a couple of issues because they learned more from the scientists or they learned more from the public. And that's about all you can ask for uh, in, in, in terms of um, good public administration. So I think we're well served right now with how parks are being managed at a provincial scale. I could change my view, but all the evidence I've seen recently tells me that that's the way it is. Uh, at a national park scale, I, I, I sh I'm very troubled, as, as, as you reflect. Um, a lot of the people that are now making decisions for national parks are not people that are rooted in the national park experience at all. They're professionals that have come from tourism sector, business sector, other government departments, government administration. And, um, and, and, and it does always come down to leadership. So um, if you aren't passionate about the social mission of parks, if the people in charge aren't passionate about that, then the people that they supervise won't be necessarily either. And at some point, you get a disconnect in the organization. I, I think Parks Canada is currently in the middle of a disconnect. But I've seen it happen before, and it comes and goes, and, and they'll fix themselves because we'll make sure they fix themselves. Uh, and it'll probably take a couple of controversies to help with that, but it, it always happens. In terms of light pollution, um, it's a problem everywhere, uh, but I know some cities are really doing a heck of a good job of sort of changing street lighting and things like that. Um, I, I know that some parks have, have identified themselves as dark sky or preserves and created that set of conversations. And that's parks doing what they should do, is giving us the right conversations to be part of. Um, I think Elk Island is not a dark sky reserve. If it is, it's dreaming of technicolor because it's right next to Edmonton. But Jasper is. I'm uh, not sure about Waterton. I think Waterton's supposed to be one too. No? It certainly could be. Sorry? Cypress Hills is. Yeah, there's a good example. It's kind of hard to escape light in this world, you know? It's, um, and all that light reflects wasted energy. And wasted energy means more carbon dioxide than we need to be producing. So it all connects back. Uh, and it all quite, quite often it represents dead birds too. So it's, a good, it's an important issue. And the conversation needs to start somewhere. And maybe parks are the place where we get, can send people home having had that conversation to an, a, a, a reawaken awareness of how bright their bloody city is at night when it doesn't need to be. Hi, Kevin. My name is Henning Mundell. And... Uh, since you're perhaps not afraid to touch controversy, which maybe when you were superintendent you might not have been able to or you would have had to be more gentle about, something which has certainly generated a lot of controversy here in southern Alberta is the location of the Waterton uh, Information Center. Mm. And uh, your successor there uh, is definitely advocating for that right in the center of town. When the concerns you express and that I share in terms of our footprint in relation to uh, that kind of a move, 
where all these cars that have to drive him, all these polluting cars. What do you think about the idea of putting such a center on the peripheries and then using electric shuttle buses? Well, you put me in an awkward position. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things when you retire, you're supposed to go out and close the door behind you and turn in the keys. Um, I, so I'm not gonna. I, I'm gonna give you a bureaucrat's answer on this one. Um, I was involved initially in forming a point of view about that. Um, I've come to the conclusion that really there is no good out. Uh, there's no perfect answer for any of these things. The one thing I will agree is that the decision they made to put it in the heart of the town means that they're not increasing the footprint of development in any way at all, and that's a good thing. They're, they're, they're concentrating the disturbance where it already exists. <laughs> it seems a bit weird to me because you gotta, uh, navigating through Waterton can be difficult, so you, gotta, you, you get lost trying to find the place to find out how not to get lost. That seems a bit weird. But if it's primarily, if, if I don't know what they have in mind for this visitor center, and if it really is one of these places that goes beyond just orienting people to where to take their selfies and goes deeper into saying this is the nature of this place and how it works, it's probably a really good spot for it because that's where everybody ends up at some point in their visit. Uh, in terms of putting it on the periphery, um, well, that would be a development footprint, uh, and it would require parking, which is a bigger development footprint, and yes, the idea about linking it then to mass transit's a great idea. I, I just don't know, putting my old parkocrat hat on, how you could make a business case for that that would be viable. It would be a very expensive proposition, and, and, and it's a very seasonal park. And Waterton's, that's one of Waterton's problems, is that it, the lights go off on you know, September 15th, pretty much. And, and um, so how do you sustain that kind of a infrastructure thing? So um, at the end of the day, I looked at their final decision, and, and my final re reaction was, well, it's maybe not what I would have done, but I understand why they did it, and it makes sense in a lot of ways, so what the heck? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't even have a town on the alluvial fan of Cameron Creek, of course, if I would go back and, and change history, but um, that's one privilege we aren't given. Thanks, Kevin. My name is Mike McCaig. Um, <coughs> just listening to and following you on Facebook and things, I wonder if you could comment a little bit on the fact that I'm a, I get confused a little bit because if, I, if you listen to one side of the argument, we should have no oil coming out of the ground, we should have no pipelines, we should have, and then we also should have no parks, we should have no restriction on OHVs, we should give the land all back to the indigenous people. Um, so how do we, how do we come to a, an area that is going to work for us, because obviously those those ideas are not going to happen. Well, I would say uh, John F. Kennedy had a bit of an answer to that one, although it was in a different context. He said, "Ask not what you can, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country." And normally, when you get to the polarities on those arguments, you're you you are dealing with self-centeredness, and and people are coming at it from a self-centered point of view. I want it the way that is best for me. And I think increasingly uh, what we need to do is to say what is best for our future generations, what is best for the land, what is going to be, uh, what is going to generate the most public goods rather than the most private benefits. And, 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 and you know, so the, you know, I, 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 I know the media plays out the, uh, this energy <laughs> thing, uh, very polarized, you know, and it goes back to that question about who is Alberta, is Alberta oil? Um, and and the, for those that buy into the idea that Alberta is oil, 
then it all becomes you know we need pipelines we need to we you know we, you know we got we got clean oil and they got dirty oil and things like that and you get into all these sort of rhetorical positions at the end of the day we know that we're going out of an oil economy we went out of a horse economy in the 1920s and there was a lot of horses left and people were saying well this won't work what are we going to do with all horses you know well they went to the knackers mostly you know and some of them went wild um, but we go through these conversions, the, these economic conversions, and they happen. And, 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 to, and to say that this time it won't happen is to be ridiculously naive. You know, like, these things have a sunset. And so if we're coming to the sunset of the oil and gas economy, um, we should line ourselves up to have something after it. And, and, and I would argue that, uh, again, uh, from, a, from a policy point of view, we actually have a strategic thinking government right now they're taking a lot of hits for it because everybody's in denial about the fact that, 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 that change is happening to us, whether we like it or not. But they are setting us up quite nicely, actually. Um, so I don't buy, you know, the extremist arguments on the oil side. And in terms of, um, uh, of, of, the, uh, um, uh, of saying that there should be no oil, well, there is oil right now. Uh, a humane approach to an economic conversion says um, you bring everybody along with you. And... Um, and you don't waste the investment you made. So I, I'm not I'm not down on the idea that we're still trying to get oil to market. I mean, um, uh, right now the world needs oil, but we need to get to a world that doesn't need oil real fast. And we're doing both of those. Well, you know, it's sort of like this, but I mean, God bless us, we're actually trying to do that, you know. <laughs> Kevin, Lauren Fitch, you, you sketched a picture for us, a, a good sketch of what parks should and could be for us. I wonder if you could comment a bit more on how we should be managing those other public lands and maybe put it in context of the Livingston Porcupine Hills, which I know is an area near and dear to your heart. You just reminded me about a reading I didn't do, but I'm not going to do it. Um, I, I have an essay in here that I wrote actually way back in the 80s when I was young and naive and, and, and yet still occasionally had flashes of insight, and it's called Have Our National Parks Failed Us? And it really goes to that question. And, and, it, and I tied it to the debate over the Olympics location when they wanted to have it on Mount Sparrowhawk. Some of you might remember that. And then it ended up with developing Mount Allen and when we had the Winter Olympics in the late 80s. And, um, of course, the original idea was to hold it at Lake Louise, which is in a national park. And, and so I looked at that debate, and, I, and uh, at that stage of my life, I was asking a lot of questions. I thought, there's something off here. There's something missing, and I've been reading Aldo Leopold, who's a you know a famous conservation writer. That uh, uh, if you're into uh, the environment any any way to any degree, at some point you've run across him and probably read him. And I realized that this this is why we need to look at the radical purpose of national parks and not the superficial purpose of national parks. Because if we just look at them superficially, they're just another way to commoditize the landscape. They just become a way in which we put the tourism and recreational commodity values uh, onto, onto a piece of landscape, and while we commoditize the rest of the landscape, and we're still thinking about landscape as something that needs to be commodified, as opposed to something that has to be sustained and lived in. So if national parks were doing their right job, nobody would leave from a national park and look at something like the Livingston and Porcupine Hills and say, yeah, it's okay to break that, because we would have realized that the places where we live are real places and that there's real things happening there and, that, and then there's no place that doesn't have value. The idea that somehow a national park or a provincial park creates conservation value and once you've got it, you can forget the rest is part of that dichotomous, polarized, fragmented thinking that, that 
keeps us out of the Garden of Eden. It, 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 it keeps us from connecting to nature in any real, real way because it's not ecological, it's fragmented. Uh, so in terms of the Livingston, uh, which is the Upper Old Man Basin and, and, and the Porcupine Hills right now, the province of Alberta, theoretically, I haven't heard from them for a while, but is, is, is doing a land use plan and recreation plan there, which is designed to reduce the impact we're having on that landscape. Well, it's out of a park, why should that matter? Well, why shouldn't it matter? It's land, it's our land, it's our home place. Every square inch of this province is vitally valuable. We can't commoditize it and expect that we're gonna be able to sustain it. And, and this is where most of Lethbridge's water, a big chunk of Lethbridge's water comes from. There's a pragmatic reason for protecting it. But anybody that knows that landscape from having experienced it on foot, reflectively trying to understand, uh, trying to understand the nature of, of what it means to be Albertan and what this part contributes to it, can't walk away unchanged by that. You know, it, putting something around a park does not put a halo around it. It just simply puts an administrative boundary around it. There is no piece of the land that's more sacred than the, any other piece. We should, we should be equally diligent on every farm, you know, farm field corner is important, you know. So uh, that would be my answer is, uh, you know, uh, if we think that national parks and provincial parks make some places more important than others, that's a symptom of our problem. That's not part, uh, they don't, they, that does not make them part of our solution. Thanks very much, Kevin, for your talk today. Uh, I'm Mary Shillington. Uh, you received a big compliment at our table because uh, the person who gave it ha has read some parts of your books and said uh, you not only walk, uh, talk the talk, but you walk the walk. So as a grandma and a great-grandma, I would w ask you, are there two or three things that you could say are very important in how you walk the walk that we could also do and, and help our grandchildren and great-grandchildren? to appreciate that our world. Well, thank you for that, uh, although I have to disagree with your table. <laughs> uh, you know, something about writing books makes you a, a person that, like, you, you, you're, you, you know, somehow you think the author is the person. We're all, we're all people. We all put our pants on one leg at a time in the morning, and we all make mistakes, and we, I don't think any of us does as good a job of walking the walk as we should, but if I was to say what, what are a couple of useful things we could do, um, I think the critical one is if you don't have a child or you don't have a grandchild, borrow somebody's and get them out for a walk in nature. Uh, you know, uh, um, everybody I know that's passionate about the environment from one point of view or another, and I'm thinking about people in the agricultural community who are passionate about it as a, as a living place, uh, people from the environmental community that are passionate about it from a nature protection point of view, all of the people that actually have that kind of passionate connection, connection with nature got it as children, usually because of something that the grown-ups did with them took them fishing, took them hunting, you know, took them out when they did chores, but that became a part of how they knew themselves. And that's so valuable. You know, that passion is, 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 is far more powerful than all the apathy in the world, you know. So we need to inoculate our society as, with as much of that as we can. So um, I'm not being superficial or facetious here. I'm saying get those kids out there. And, uh, yeah, if they have a cell phone, make sure they're just doing what my nieces were doing, which is video blogging where they are, not texting their friends. Um, so that's, that's one piece. Uh, I, I think the other piece is, it, it goes back to what I said earlier, is to take responsibility for these conversations. You know, um, you know we, I, you're having a presentation in a week or two on the Me Too movement. One of the things we see with the Me Too, Me Too movement is people have stopped being silent. 
they've said, you know, silence is no longer an option for me. I'm going to speak up when I see this stuff. And that could change everything, or it might be that this is a flash in the pan. We'll find out in the fullness of time. But I think the same thing applies on the environmental front. Don't let people get away with stuff. You know, like, like, like when there's a conversation, say, well, yeah, but have you ever considered this? Or, you know, I happen to have Kevin's book here. No. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, I, I, I think I think we 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 can't be we can't be passive participants in society, and expect society to then deliver different results. We have to take ownership of those conversations and stories. And uh, I think the other thing is to be realistic. We know we are not going to save the world. Um, uh, I, I'm I'm old enough now to have realized that. I, I, it, it was maddening to me because when I was 20, I was sure I was going to do it. But um, we're not going to change the world, so we might as well at least enjoy it. So if, even if you can't find the kid, get yourself out there. You know? um, this is a wonderful place. Uh, why not spend, spend more time bonding with it? It might help you save the world, but at the very least, it'll help you live in it. Thank you very much, Kevin. I'm Bev Mundell Atherstone. <clears throat> I really enjoyed your readings. You have quite a, a lovely style. Uh, that pushes us, in fact. Um, so my question kind of follows from the whole theme here amongst the questionnaires of uh, what can we do. Um, by the way, this is a very active society. Lethbridge, we, we had no drilling, and we stopped the drilling in Lethbridge by Golden Key. You know, we're, we're a pretty powerful group. So uh, you tell us what to do, and I'm sure we can do it. <laughs> 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 so you've talked about parks and then um, the the land around the parks, the wildlife and nature uh, conservatories, or I'm not sure what they're called, conservancies, you know, like around Waterton, that whole big right. area Waterton where Park. where the far, the ranch land is is uh, considered part of sort of the extension. Okay, and then we have places like Lethbridge and Calgary that are they're just eating up farmland and eating up nature just as fast as the bulldozers can get out there. So um, I'm kind of wondering, do you have a vision of what cities could look like? You talked about villages, but what could? And you talked about your Okotoks experience. What could it look like? I mean, we have wildlife living in Lethbridge. You know, we have mule deer herds that live in Lethbridge. We have we have raccoons. We have badgers. We have skunks. We you know they we took over their land and they said no way, Jose. <laughs> they're they're here. They're back. We have coyotes. There's lots of cities in the U.S. Coyotes just run down. So my question is, how? <laughs> what is your vision of how we can live together with nature? have nature here with us because obviously the seven and a half billion people on the planet we're, we're gobbling up nature yeah. well uh, that, that's one I spent some and I, and I touch on it in the book again uh, in that essay that I read from last to uh, you know, that whole Okotoks experience but you know uh, we're part way there in terms of creating cities that are far more livable and far more integrated with our and, and you touched on it there when I was a kid growing up in Calgary, you didn't see jackrabbits in people's front yards. You didn't see coyotes along the river. You didn't even see parks along the river. All you saw was old sidewalks. We used old sidewalks to riprap the riverbanks, and then uh, back of the riprap was the backyards of all the industrial sites. So, so our cities were not places of nature, and uh, and 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 we went through that period in the twentieth in the in the, in the late twentieth century where cities were pretty ugly, pretty awful, and. 
when you look at the new stuff we're building, yeah, they still are. You know, uh, the, the, those, those, those endless boxes that are spread out across, you know, identical boxes. But uh, our parks have now got valued urban park systems. Our, our, our cities have valued urban park systems. We do have urban wildlife, and we don't automatically treat it as problems. We, we, we try and figure out how to manage it. Um, and, and so th it is possible to get kids into nature, to get people into nature without them even leave, leaving the city increasingly. And that's, that's brilliant, I mean, because these are the places where we live. Uh, on the other hand, um, this sprawl issue is, 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 is one that we, um, is, cre is created from our economy that fails to value everything to the degree in which we should value it. Land is cheap, farmland is cheap and it's, it's worth more developed. So my idea about what the future would be is that our cities don't grow another square inch. They just stay exactly the size they are and we start densifying them. And while we're densifying them, we also start renaturizing them. And, and it's entirely doable. Um, uh, the population density of you know, Brooklyn and, 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 and Manhattan is way denser than any of our cities and yet they've got things like Central Park and they brought back to, to life their Hudson River you can do stuff if you realize that, that you've hit the limit and, and, and there's nowhere left to go. But until you hit that limit, you keep thinking you get, there's somewhere else you can go and you, and, you, and, and you defer the important decisions like urban parks, like urban nature, like, 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 like livable communities. So um, I don't write the cities off at all, but they're a heck of a lousy land use. So I'd say uh, let's make our cities livable, but let's also s put a cap on them. You know, they're, 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 they ain't making more land and land is where everything happens. And as much as you can make a city more livable, you still can't make it back into nature, you know, which is what they come at the expense of. So I, I think you and I are probably singing from the same song sheet on this one, but um, uh, there's nothing wrong with cities. It's just that we can't make the whole world a city. We, but we should certainly make cities more livable. And on that note, and on that note, I'd like to thank And on that note, I would like to thank Kevin for his fabulous performance today. And if you would like to thank Kevin, now is the time.